Hey everybody and welcome to True Crime Paranormal with the Psychic Sisters. This is Katie Weaver and I am here with my co-anchor and cart partner in crime, not partner in prime, maybe, <laughs> <laughs> Christy Brower. Hello. Hello. Hey everybody. How's it going? I hope everybody's doing well. It's Tuesday. It's Taco Tuesday. It is Taco Tuesday. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. I, might take, I, might, I might take you up on that. Tacos and margaritas for everyone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Well, this is our joint case for the week. Yes, it is. And we are really excited about it. If you have been uh, a true crime aficionado for very long, you know all about this case. Or if you've been on the planet for very long, you know about this case. Uh, yeah. If you were at least born prior to the 90s, you know about this case. Yeah, it's one of the more horrifying uh, true crime Serial killer cases of all time, really. Well, and befuddling. I think it's very befuddling also. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's studied so heavily because WTF, people. Yeah. So we are talking about the one and only Jeffrey Dahmer. Mm -hmm. You may know Jeffrey Dahmer as the guy that kills and eats people because that's really what his, uh, dare we call it, claim to fame was. Yeah. Yeah, it was. But and there's been lots and lots and lots and lots of documentaries, books, work on Dahmer. You guys know and we know, but we're going to give you a loose timeline of his life anyway. And then we're going to talk a little bit about what in the actual hell, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's where we are. So he was also known as the Milwaukee cannibal. He his uh, characteristics were rape, dismemberment, necrophilia, and cannibalism. He only uh, attacked and killed men. He had 17 victims. He started murdering in 1978 and was finally arrested and his spree of terror was done in 1991. He was arrested on July 27th, 19, or 22nd, sorry, 1991. He was born in 1960. His victims were Stephen Hicks, 19, Stephen Tuomi, 26, James Jamie Doxeter, 14, Richard Guerrero, 25, Anthony Sears, 26, Eddie Smith, 36, Ricky Beeks, 27, Ernest Miller, 22, David Thomas, 23, Curtis Strotter, 19, Errol Lindsay, 19, Tony Hughes, 31, Conorak, Hmm. Hmm. Cynthia Somophone, mm-hmm. 14. Matt Turner, 20. Jeremiah Weinberger, 23. Oliver Lacey, 23. And Joseph Radahoff, 25. Very, uh, except for those two 14-year-olds and the one 31-year-old. I mean, most of them were pretty tight, uh, right in the same kind of age range. Mm-hmm. His typical method of murder was strangulation or cutting throats. He was in Ohio and Wisconsin. He pled not guilty by reason of insanity. Uh, and we'll get to all of that as we keep going. So that's basically who he was and what he did. But let's get into it a little bit more. So he was born in Milwaukee. And his mother had bouts of partial paralysis during pregnancy. 
Yeah, they weren't sure if they were seizures or what, but she had these weird episodes. Mm -hmm. And she was given injections of barbiturates and morphine to relax her and phenobarbital, barbital, which, uh, you know, those are all pretty heavy duty meds for a pregnant woman. Yeah. Uh, You would not see that in this day and age, but in 1960, we were still doing things to pregnant women that probably shouldn't have been happening. Right. Right. Agreed. They're, that That's really the only thing that they can find that, hey, maybe this is why his brain was so weird. Yeah. Uh, in 1962, his family moved to Iowa so his dad could work. So when he was two, his dad was working on his Ph.D. in chemistry. His dad was a super, super smart guy. Yeah. Uh, so was Jeffrey. Oh, yeah. Very, very. When he was four, he was diagnosed with a double hernia in his scrotum as a four year old. Yikes. Uh, birth defect, I'm guessing. I guess. I've, I've wondered that too. Like, is that common in four-year-olds? I don't know. I don't know. Apparently, it was an extremely painful uh, ordeal oh, I'll bet. that uh, was really hard on him. And his parents said that after surgery, he became more introverted than mm-hmm. he had been before that happened. That, that's mm-hmm. really interesting, I think. It is. But- because he was pretty introverted to begin with. Yeah. All right. So in 66, they moved again. So they moved quite a bit throughout his uh, early upbringings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the only reason I, the early childhood stuff is fascinating to me, you know, mm-hmm. and part of that is that I, you know, what, I'm degreed in early childhood education and early childhood uh, development. And so I always want to know like what happened really early because we know right. that's, starts to form a person. Now, some people are born crazy, you know, born a psychopath or something along those lines. Some people had a lot of help from their families, like the night stalker or the night caller. Yes. We'll, we'll get into it here with Jeffrey later on, but that, that's mm-hmm. why we discuss the early childhood stuff. It's extremely important. Well, because isn't that, that the whole reason why we do this is to answer that question of why? Yep. Why? Yep. Yeah. So mom got pregnant and was really sick again, just like she was uh, with Jeffrey. She had a really hard time. And Jeffrey was in first grade at the time, and his teacher uh, felt like he was being neglected and contacted the family because she was really concerned about the fact that uh, it didn't seem like he was really being taken care of at home. So his father says that he was extraordinarily shy and withdrawn and absolutely terrified of new people and new situations. Mm-hmm. In 1968, they moved to Bath, Ohio. So this is four moves now, five moves in his short little life. Mm-hmm. And at this point, his father reports that he was molested by a neighbor. Mm-hmm. Now, Jeffrey later on in interviews says that, that he can't remember that. He has no idea what his dad's talking about. Mm-hmm. However, in lots of his crimes, he can remember the beginning and the end, but can't remember the the middle. Yes. So I don't think it's a stretch to think that perhaps he uh, had shut mm-hmm. some things out. And dissociating. Yeah. Yeah. So he, that's when he was eight years old. So in 1970, his mother has been hospitalized twice for psychiatric problems. She had been taking some medication for extreme nervousness. Mm-hmm. But uh, they weren't working very well, and she was really struggling. Mm-hmm. So he started 
at school and started drinking really early, like 10 to 12 years old. Yeah. And he was really, and he would do weird shit at school, weird pranks and stuff, like Mm -hmm. yell out inappropriate things at weird times, bleat like a sheep uh, to startle people, faked having epileptic fits, Mm -hmm. which is really weird because, uh, if he was so shy and introverted, I, I just have a hard time with that one. Right. Why was he terrified doing that? of people in new places is doing this kind of stuff at school? Well, and at that point in school, there was what was known as the Jeffrey Dahmer fan club. And that was some boys who yeah. absolutely loved him. They thought he was hilarious for the stuff uh-huh. that he was doing. Yeah. He pulled a huge prank on the school uh, in his senior year. Where he, they were taking pictures of like the honor society and the band and the orchestra and, you know, whatever, all those big group photos. And he kept sneaking into the photos. And so he was in a whole bunch of them in these groups that he wasn't a part of. And in his high school yearbook, the honor society was really mad about it because he wasn't in the honor society. So they blacked his face out before they printed the, um, yearbooks and the picture is so creepy like it's like a it's like telling you who he really was yeah but yeah the kids at school they didn't see it as weird they loved him they thought he was hilarious he was he would prank and do things like uh, he used to yell in the library and the librarians mm. never thought it was him like other kids always got blamed he would yell out somebody's name really loud uh-huh. and they never thought it was him because he was so quiet and withdrawn right mm-hmm. and that his friends loved it because he, he would get away with it every time because the librarian would never suspect him. Wow. There's a little something about him going forward, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, but very on the trip. Yeah. Yeah. So in June, on June 4th of 1978, he graduates from high school. So by this time, his parents have divorced or mm-hmm. are in the middle of a really ugly divorce. Because he's 18, they neither of them want him. And kind of just leave, move on without him. And it, so he's living by himself. And then he ends up moving in with grandma. But uh, he is just, he has no emotional support at all. He's just on his own, you know, and he's graduating from high school by himself. Yeah. Well, they so both just, parents just moved out of the house. And yeah, left. And just left him there. Yeah. So two weeks after he graduates from high school. He picks up a kid named Stephen Mark Hicks, who was hitchhiking. They go back to his house for a few beers. At some point, Hicks decides he needs to go, and he tries to leave, and Dahmer clubs him with a barbell and then puts it around his neck and strangles him to death with it. Just out of the blue. This is while he's living... Isn't this while he's living in where his parents lived and they'd moved out and left him? Yeah, Yeah. still at that house. Yeah. So over the next couple of weeks, he methodically strips the flesh from the bones of this person and smashes the bones and disposes of the few remains in the backyard of this house. He does say in a later uh, interview that he killed him because he didn't want him to leave. Yeah. Just really wanted him to uh, stay there and stay with him. That's a very common theme throughout all of his crimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of for affection and support and yeah. not finding it. Yeah. His friends say that uh, he used to like to pick up roadkill 
and take it back to his house and uh, strip it down. Mm-hmm. He'd been he was, doing that for a while. Yeah, he was super um, fascinated with mm-hmm. that. Yes, and he had a little animal cemetery in their backyard. So I'm assuming that's probably where Stephen Hicks ended up. But they, one of his friends had even said at one point he had a dog's head mounted on a stake. Yeah. If, yeah, a lot of weird, really weird stuff. This guy is a psychopath. Okay. Yeah. So then he tries to go to college. He enrolls in Ohio State University. And he only stays one semester. Things are just getting more unstable for him. You know, he didn't have any support. And trying to go off to college. And, you know, mom has been seriously mentally ill. And dad is just totally doing his own thing. He's just not got any real support happening. And in fact, on Christmas Eve of that same year, his dad remarries. So his parents had only been divorced a minute. And dad is already remarried and just kind of moved on without him. Right, right. So he decides to join the military. If he's not going to go to college, he needs something to do. So he is sworn into the army on December 29th of that year. So 1978 is this huge year for him. He graduates from high school. He commits his first murder. He does a whole semester of college and joins the military and his parents. And his parents divorced. Yeah. Yep. So he's a medic in, and they assign him to bomb holder Germany. And he doesn't love it. And the, this is right after Vietnam and things in the military are pretty rough. Morale is really low and there's a lot of drug abuse and alcohol abuse. And he is drinking really, really heavy, heavily. So he's not so much the, like the clown and prankster like he was in high school. He's now kind of getting known as a belligerent drunk. Yeah. And finally, they actually remove him from the army. In 1981. So he lasts three years in the army and then they discharge him for disorderly conduct and for anyway, for drinking basically. So when he gets back to the U S he kind of lives homeless for a while. He sleeps on a beach in Florida for a few months before he finally makes his way back to Ohio to his grandmother. So That was in March of 1981. On October 7th, he's arrested for disorderly conduct and resisting arrest. And then things go quiet for quite a while until August 7th, 1982. So almost a year. Well, when he got arrested after he got home, uh, German authorities realized that they have a serial killer that was active in the area where he was when he was there. Mm -hmm. And so they did look into him but determined it wasn't him. That serial killer was killing women. Okay. But yeah. he was actually suspected of being That's a serial right. killer clear back then. Isn't that interesting? I just really think there were so many opportunities to get him yeah. on the streets that yeah. were missed. And that was a big one right there because yeah. they knew he was weird, yeah. but very weird crimes that they thought he did. Yeah. Well, in August 1982, he's arrested for disorderly conduct because he dropped his pants in public. And, of course, he's now living with grandma. Um, she's the only person that he seemed to have any kind of, like, bond or attachment to at all. Yeah. And even that was pretty questionable. Mm-hmm. But um, on September 8th, 1986, he was arrested again 
when he deliberately exposed himself while urinating in front of a small group of children in Milwaukee. Uh, there's another version of that story that he was actually masturbating in front of those children. But well, and during that time between 82 and 86, he started going to church with grandma uh -huh. and really was trying to find religion and God and try to be a good person. You know, yeah. he killed that. He killed somebody and he knew it. And he he really did in the in his um, confession. He talks about how he tried really hard yeah. to get connected with God and church and stuff. And, you know, that's what that was his grandma's thing in hopes that he could maybe stop what he knew was happening in his head. Yeah. So yeah. that's that's why that gap is there is because he was trying, he was trying. To, church to, you know, turn him into a good guy. Mm -hmm. trying to rehab himself he knew there was something evil in oh, him yeah he, he definitely was little he, yeah he did yeah so on september 15th 1987 he murders another stephen interestingly stephen yeah. tuomi yeah so he had been for a while he'd been frequenting in milwaukee gay bars and bathhouses yeah and it was kind of an interesting uh, thing. Like in, in interviews with him, he says, uh, you know, obviously uh, he was more drawn to men than women, you know, was basically having sex with all these guys in these bathhouses or, you know, some of them, I guess I shouldn't say all. But mm -hmm. uh, he didn't really identify as homosexual. But then again, maybe he was because that's the only kind of uh, sex he was seeking. Right. He said in an interview, it was kind of interesting. But at any rate, so he was even uh, barred from a bathhouse because there were allegations that on four separate occasions he had drugged people in places like that and then had sex with them. Yeah. Now, these were places that uh, were well under the radar and that definitely did not want the police involved. Mm -hmm. And so that had never been reported uh, until later after, you know, all of the Dahmer stuff came out. Then they made a report. But. Yeah. At any rate, uh, one of the victims was actually hospitalized for a week because yeah. of what he did to them. Almost died. Yeah. Yeah. So on September 15th, another, there was another opportunity to get him off the street that yes. was missed. There are so many missed. in this so story. Many. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. So at age 20, th this next victim uh, was 24 years old, Stephen Tuomi. Dahmer says he woke up in a hotel room and found the victim dead. He says he has no memory of doing it, but he figured he did do it. He bought a big suitcase and smuggled the body out of the hotel in a suitcase back to his grandmother's house and proceeded to strip it down, uh, you know, strip all of the uh, flesh off the bones and pound the bones into bits like he did with Stephen Hicks. So it's been nine years since he's committed a murder the first, between the first and the second, right. if we believe him. And right. believe it or not, we don't have much of a reason not to. Yeah. Because when he got caught, he spilled his guts. He did. He did. He told everything and he didn't really seem to hold anything back. I think um, the police that were interrogating him were pretty sure that he told the whole story. There wasn't any reason to hide anything at this point. Yeah. He knew he so, was going away forever. Totally. Yeah. So that happened in 1987 on September 15th. In 1988, in January, he 
gets a hold of a kid named James Doxeter, who's 14. Dahmer offered him money to pose for nude photos and took him back to his grandmother's house and had sex with him and then drugged and strangled him. So here we are again uh, doing the same thing, you know, drugging people, strangling them, and then also using the same means to get rid of his body. Yeah, using acid to mm-hmm. dissolve as much as he could. Yep. Then in March of 1988, Richard Guerrero came back to Dahmer's grandmother's house with him for nude photos. Again, he was offering to pay them, you know, to come and get their photos taken. And then he, of course, gets them back there and kills them. So again, he did take a lot of photos, even though. Yes, that wasn't the main reason he had a Polaroid camera. And there were lots of photos. Yes, lots and lots of photos, which is a good thing. That was a part of his decline or his uh, prosecution. Right. Uh, but yes, he would photograph everyone that he killed. So same, basically the same story. They have sex, Dahmer drugs and strangles and kills Richard. Yeah. Well, and so at about around this time, there I can't remember his name, but there was a man who survived Dahmer. He drugged him. He managed to get out of the house and get away. Mm-hmm. And he went to the police and the police believed Dahmer. The police came back and talked to Dahmer and said, you know, oh, it just sounds like a sex game gone bad. These are gay men. We're not getting involved. That kind of thing. Yeah. But he nearly killed this guy. But yeah. his grandma saw this guy stumble out of their yard. Like yeah. at some point, grandma woke up to this shit's happening in her house. So she yeah. goes to Jeffrey's dad and says, hey, there's some weird stuff going on. And uh, so they kind of inform Jeffrey that he can't live with grandma anymore because yeah. she says he's bringing men in at night. I think he's mm-hmm. gay. I think I don't know what's going on. That guy looked like he was drunk or high or something. And so his mm-hmm. dad got worried and said, OK, you have to move out. You got to get your own place. Right. Well, and there was an incident with the mannequin at some point, too. Oh, yeah, about the mannequin. So before this, before this, I think it was before the second murder. I can't remember the exact date. He decided. So the thing you got to understand about Dahmer is what he wanted is he wanted someone to stay with him and cuddle with him in bed and like offer support and kindness to him. This is the weirdest. This is how twisted the human mind can get. And he was trying not to kill anybody. He really was. He, you know, and he was finding that it was very challenging. He was always trying to figure out how to control his victim so that he could have them with him, let them not die, but them also not be in charge, you know, like wake up and run away. And he wasn't very good at that. He kept killing them because he was Mm -hmm. poisoning them. And then he was drugging them and strangling them. So he sneaks, he goes into this department store and he goes in the bathroom And he hides in the bathroom until the department store closes. And then he goes and he gets a male mannequin and he puts it in a sleeping bag. And he sneaks out of the department store and takes it home and sleeps with it and does gross stuff with it. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was the other thing that grandma mentioned to his dad was like, hey, he's got this weird mannequin he's sleeping with. And I don't know what's going on here, but I don't think he should be living in my house anymore. Again, could have been some intervention. There it's wasn't. An, honestly, a miracle that he doesn't kill grandma. You know, right? a miracle right. that he doesn't just get her out of his way. Except for, of course, she is paying the bills. So right. yeah, that's I mean, where that came in. 
he works occasionally, but he doesn't always work. And yeah, he yeah. had a lot of support up to this point. For sure. So by September of 1988, he has now moved into his own place. He offers a 13-year-old kid $50 to pose nude. Then he gives him drugged coffee and fondles him, and the kid escapes and runs out into the street. Yeah. And Dahmer is arrested. Yeah. Could have ended here. Could have. Really very much could have. But it didn't. So he takes a little break from his killing spree for a minute. Uh, in January 1989, he's convicted of second-degree sexual assault and enticing a child for immoral purposes. And sentenced on May 23rd to five years and three and three years, sentences to be served concurrently, and only serves 10 months, and then they let him out on probation. Oh, and when this there. happens, his dad writes the judge a letter and says, I am mm -hmm. I'm terrified that you're letting him out. He's not had any. I've been fighting with the jail to try to get him some treatment. He's had nothing. And so there, he's going to keep doing this. If you let him out, he's going to keep doing this. Somebody's got mm -hmm. to intervene. And they let him out yep. anyway. Yep. Yep. It is unreal. Yeah, it's it's horrifying. And it's it's horrifying for his dad. You can tell that his dad really did try. He made some efforts to get him yep. help and to keep him confined for a while. And he could see, you know, it was finally dawning on him what the hell was yeah. going on here, you know, but he yeah. got nowhere with getting help from the jail. And of course that's not what prison and jail are for. Right. And you yeah. know, this is in the late eighties. Now there are programs that he probably would have sent been sent to a specific facility that did actually do some treatment. Not that it would have done yeah. any good because he's a psychopath. You can't, there's no treatment yeah. for that, but Anyway, I just, his dad was really, um, I saw an interview with his dad and he was very emotional about it, that yeah. he couldn't believe that they just let him back out into the world to yeah. just keep doing this again. And he felt so um, help, helpless that he couldn't yeah. stop it. For sure. Yeah. Well, in the midst of going through the court system and being sentenced, mm -hmm. he commits another murder. Right. Ugh. On March 25th. Anthony Sears, who was 24, Dahmer meets him at his club, takes him back to his grandmother's house and has sex with him and drugs him and murders him. And when they arrest Dahmer, they find Sears' skull. He's painted it yeah. and kept it. And he has it in his apartment. Yeah. So then he's he does his little really stint in jail. Here. Yeah. So then he has his little stint in jail. He's in jail for 10 months, gets out. So then in 1990, on May 29th, so we have, you know, a whole 14 months of no murders by Dahmer at this right. point. And on May 29th, he murders Ricky Beeks. He meets him at a club and offers him money to pose for nude pictures. That just keeps working. Mm -hmm. And drugs and strangles him and then has sex with his dead body. He's kind of moving into more dark stuff if that's possible you know yeah because yeah. if this could even get worse because it does it will very soon yeah yeah for sure uh also takes his skull and paints it and keeps it in his apartment yeah. so then in june of 1990 so we're kind of picking up here you know yeah, there's very only, much so. 
um, a month in between these murders, he kills a guy named Edward Smith. He met him at a bar and offered him money for sex and pictures. After sex, he drugs and strangles Smith and takes pictures during the process of dismembering the body. And that's another, you know, descent into further darkness here. Yes, for sure. So then just three months later on September 2nd, he kills Ernest Miller, 24. He met Dahmer in front of a bookstore and Dahmer offered him money to come home with him. So he goes home with him, has sex with him, and Dahmer drugs him and cuts his throat. Again, a little shift. He has always uh, strangled and now we're cutting throats. He took pictures of the body and then dismembered it. He put the biceps in the freezer. Then he bleached the skeleton and painted the skull and had that one as well in his apartment. Hanging on to. So weird how he's getting, you know, like bleaching the bones, painting the skulls. Like he's getting like this is becoming art to him in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and the photographs, I've, I've felt that way for a long time. That It's kind of like art to him. Well, in an interview with him, he says that he has a vision of building an altar with a certain number of skulls on it. And he was working on acquiring that many skulls. Right. Okay. Well, that would make sense. Yeah. So on September 24th, so this is like, what, three weeks in between murders. David C. Thomas is murdered. Dahmer meets him on the street and offers him money to come home with him. He drugs Thomas and murders him without sex this time and takes pictures as he dismembers the body. Well, and again, go ahead. Oh, well, this is where you start to see that it's not really about sex for him. It is mm-hmm. that he's getting sexual um, gratification. And he talks about that in his interviews from the actual uh, like dismemberment and murder stuff that he doesn't he doesn't. He talked about that. He actually does not like having anal sex. And that was not what he wanted, even though he's having sex with all these gay men. He, he wants them to cuddle him in bed. Yeah, before he murders them and dismembers them, I guess. But then he starts really, you know, saying that really it's the murder part and the dismember part that is really doing it for him. Yeah. Yeah. Gross. So we move on to 1991. So from September to March, he takes a little break. Yeah. And March 7th, he murders Curtis Strotter. He picks him up at a bus stop, offers him money to come home with him. He drugs him and strangles him after sex, takes pictures of the dismembered body. He kept this skull as two, though, though he did not paint this one. It was also recovered. Maybe he hadn't had time to yet. It was recovered in his arrest. Mm. Uh, this is the third sequence of events that he experimented with. Mm-hmm. So first it had been sex, drugging, then murder. Then it was drugs, murder, sex. This is drug, sex, and murder. So he's kind yeah. of playing around with what, what is the most is gratifying like? for him. Yeah. Yeah. At one point, too, in an interview with him, he says that he tried to keep people alive in a zombie state. So they would stay with him and stay alive, but he could control them by injecting various things into their brains. Yes. He was trying to. Yeah. Yeah. So one month later, on April 7th, Errol Lindsay was murdered. He meets him on the street and offers him money to come home with him. He drugs Lindsay, strangles him, and has sex with his body. Uh, again, saves his skull. One thing to know is that, as you know, there's a lot of young men going missing in Milwaukee. No what gives? Most of them 
uh, the majority of his victims are black and they are all homosexual mm-hmm. and the police do not give a fuck about them. Right. Unfortunately. That is so true. There's so many men went missing before anybody was like, Hey, wait a minute. What? Mm-hmm. You know, they had, like from they'd been reported missing. It's not that they hadn't. It was that uh, and he was getting them all from the same area in Milwaukee. I mean, it's not like he was spreading out. He wasn't. Right. And no one's Ugh. looking for a serial killer, you know? Yeah. No one's looking for something to figure out why all these men are going missing. Right. Yeah. May 17th, so just another month later, he meets 14-year-old Conorak. Uh, every time. Cynthia yeah. <laughs> Sofo. He meets Conorak. Somophone. <laughs> yeah, Cynthia Somophone. Mm-hmm. There you go in front of a mall, offers him money to pose for nude pictures. Uh, After the pictures, he drugs this kid and then goes out for beer. The boy escapes. He's naked in the street. The police are called by the neighbors. Yeah, the 17-year-old girl that finds this kid and calls the police and is really worried. Yes, because something is obviously really wrong. So Dahmer convinces the police that this boy is his lover. And apparently they don't realize he's 14. Right. And the girl, she was 17 at the time that reported this, was really pissed because mm-hmm. she knew this was, that he was a kid. He said that, that yeah. he is not an adult. This mm-hmm. is not right. And called the police back after. And and they just totally bought Dahmer's story. He was yeah. so good at manipulation. It was just crazy. Yeah. And this kid is drugged out of his gourd. He can't even bleed into the his name yeah he's bleeding he's naked and they just let Dahmer take him back into his apartment with him yep and as soon as they leave he strangles and kills this kid has sex with his body takes pictures and dismembers him and you know hangs on to his skull yeah it kills me that uh when the whole story is known later on that they you know yet again could have stopped him there is mild disciplinary action taken against the officers involved they get fired and then they get rehired. Yeah. What the hell? It's unreal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. However, his family does sue the hell out of the police department. Yeah, they do. They do because it was ridiculous what yep. happened there. Yep. So then on May 24th, which is a week, now we're yeah. at a week, he picks up a guy named Tony Hughes. So they, they had known each other for two years, they'd seen each other at bars and bathhouses. And Hughes was deaf and mute, so they would write back and forth to each other to communicate. He offered him $50 to come home with him and pose for nudes. So Hughes comes with him. He drugs and murders him without sex this time and again hangs on to his skull. Mm-hmm. So then June 30th, a month later, he kills Matt Turner. They meet in Chicago at a bus station after a gay pride parade. So Dahmer's at a gay pride parade, living it up, meeting people, meeting victims. Mm -hmm. And Dahmer offers him money to pose nude. He drugs him, strangles him with a strap and cuts the body up. He puts his head in the freezer and the rest of his body in a barrel of acid. So now he has a whole barrel of acid to drop bodies into to dissolve them. Yeah, that was his new thing that he wanted to see if he could just make a body completely go away. I got to ask, though, because he lived in an apartment building. Right. How the hell was all this this shit up the stairs? Like, what the hell is he doing with that barrel in his apartment? Hearing anything, smelling anything? Like, really? 
The neighbors did. The neighbor across the hall, and who they were very shocked when this happened. They did not, they thought he was a pretty nice guy and had gotten to know him, but they did smell something rotten. And the the woman went to the door and, and knocked and said, what the hell's going on? And he told them that his freezer had died and that all the meat in it had gone bad. And they liked uh, him because uh, they'd never seen, you know, he was doing all of this stuff in the dark of night, sneaking around when no one was paying any yeah. attention. They'd never yeah. seen anything that gave him a reason not to. Um, Again, he was such a ghost. Him. Yeah. Well, and he was very good with people. He was, you know, and the neighbors said, we loved him. He was, we couldn't believe this was happening. We knew him. Yeah. We'd lived across the hall from him for a while now. And he was a good friend. And yeah. like, that's what so many people said about Dahmer. Yeah. He was truly a psychopath in that he yeah. could navigate the world without mm -hmm. ever showing who he really was. Yeah. Publicly. No, just just the neighborhood nice guy. Yeah. Yeah. Really was. Yeah. So just one week after Matt Turner, Jeremiah Weinberger is murdered. They also met in Chicago at a gay bar where Dahmer offered him money to come back to Milwaukee. That trip to uh, Chicago was uh, fruitful, apparently. Apparently, yeah. So he comes back. This time it's a little bit different. Uh, it's, it's very unusual for Dahmer. The victim was not murdered the day he came home with Dahmer. He indicated he wanted to leave. Dahmer drugged him and strangled him and dismembered him, but he'd been there hanging out for a while mm -hmm. and chilling with him. And then when he's like, all right, well, I guess I got to go. And he killed him. Well, that's why, because that mm -hmm. all of this in his, in his confessions, what he talks about is wanting someone to stay with him. And he yep. says things like when he met various men, he would say, oh, I knew I wanted to keep him. Yes. It was all about how can I keep them and keep them compliant with me, but yeah. he, he couldn't, there was no way he yeah. tried. That's what he thought the pictures were going to be for a while and that didn't work. Yeah. And then he couldn't yeah. keep them alive and compliant. You know, he tried all kinds yeah. of stuff. He tried all kinds. Yeah. He experimented with all kinds of things, but how twisted was his attachment to other people? Yeah. That he wanted to keep them. that. Yeah. So he, same with this one. Uh, body goes into the vat and head goes into the freezer. So two weeks later, week later, he's fired from his job. He worked at the Ambrosia Chocolate Company. That's yikes. <laughs> I know. Is that just kind of gross? I don't, I don't want to hurt Ambrosia Chocolate Company if they're still open. But yeah, yikes. Big yikes. That may were made by Jeffrey Dahmer. That's all I'm saying. They had to rename I don't know. I made that up. <laughs> anyway, so the same day, he picks up a guy named Oliver Lacey, meets him on the street, and they go back to Dahmer's apartment for body rubs. Then, of course, you might have guessed it, Lacey was then drugged and strangled. Yeah. Dahmer had sex with his dead body before dismembering it. He put the head in the freezer and decides to put the heart in the freezer to eat later. This is where the cannibalism starts yeah. coming. One interesting thing that I didn't really understand until I really started studying him is that the cannibalism didn't last very long. Right. That was actually right at the very end. Yes. Yep. Yep. That he didn't do that for very long. Not that it makes it better, but it was another attempt at this person can never leave me. If I consume yep. them, then they can never leave me. And they will be a part of me. Yep. Yeah. Yep. On July 16th, 
So just one day later, uh, Joseph Brandenhoff is murdered. They meet at a bus stop where Dahmer offers him money to pose for nudes. He's really looking for people that are in a vulnerable spot and that need money. Yeah. You know, it, it's a, he definitely has a type. Mm-hmm. After sex, Dahmer drugs him, strangles him with a strap. He dismembers the body. And as before, he puts the head in the freezer and the body in the acid barrel. So mm-hmm. then, finally, on July 22nd, 1991, he connects with a man named Tracy Edwards. And Tracy Edwards manages to escape from the apartment. Tracy says that uh, they had been, you know, doing things and it got weird and he decided he wanted to leave and Dahmer got really upset and attacked him and Edwards fought back and ran out of the apartment. With handcuffs on, on one hand. On one hand. And finds a police car and the police, he takes the police back to Dahmer's apartment uh, and they ask him for the key to the handcuffs and Dahmer at this point waves them to tells him it's in the bedroom and he says in interviews with him that he knows at this point it's it's over he yes. knows the jig is up he doesn't really try to fight them or to deceive them at all he just yeah. sits there and they go back to his bedroom and they find all of these photos of dismembered victims can you imagine being a police officer on this no oh you I saw Weird sex shit going on, and it turns out no, you've got a full blown serial killer on your hands. Right. Well, and um, yeah, I saw some interviews with the police and what this was like. It was just unfreaking believable yeah. stuff they'd never seen before. Yeah. So then, of course, they find all of these body parts in the fridge and the freezer. But yeah, apparently, a, the man uh, Tracy Edwards. So he tells the police he has body parts in his refrigerator. So one of the police officers opens the fridge and there's a man's head sitting in it with its eyes wide open and its mouth wide open. Oh my God. The officer screams. And then that's when they figure out they've got some serious, scary shit Mm -hmm. going on. Yep. It's horrifying. Yeah. So they bring in crews in hazmat protection because uh, the apartment is full of decaying bodies as well as uh, the acid in the barrel is really dangerous. And so then they have to start trying to, you know, dissect this apartment and get yeah. all of well, this. They also evacuate a bunch of the neighbors. Yes. Yeah. Before they have they start to. moving it. Yeah. They, yeah. They, that's when they talk to the across the hall neighbor who tells him the story about the freezer. Yeah. That they yeah. had something, but that he'd given him a reason. Yeah. And then, of course, it becomes a media circus, you know, because holy shit. So now there's press everywhere and they're watching these, you know, people in hazmat suits hauling all this, you know, boxes and bags and stuff of evidence down to take. Yeah. It's really horrible, really horrible and shocking and people just can't believe it. So he basically just, uh, Dahmer knows he's caught. He has nothing to hide. He just starts spilling his guts. And very in a very deadpan way, just starts telling him of each and every murder. Yeah. What, you know, the date, the time, the person, what he did do with him, what he didn't do with him. He lays it all out on the table. Yeah. Yeah. By then he he knows it's up and he doesn't even fight back, which is interesting. Yep. So 
finally, so that was on July 22nd, 1991. That's when he's arrested. Mm-hmm. On January 14th, he enters a plea of guilty but insane on 15 of the 17 murders that he, these are just all the murders that he has claimed he committed. They don't really know. Right. You know, what they know is what he told them. Yeah. But they don't have much reason to doubt him because he really, he, he doesn't lie about anything that they can verify. He's right. telling them what happened. Yeah, exactly. He's he's telling them, you know, everything he did. I mean, he talks about some incredibly gross stuff. And so you're like, well, he's not really holding anything back if he's going to say that. Yeah. So by a majority vote, a 10 to 2 majority vote, a jury finds him sane in each one of those murders. Yeah. And then they have to go through testimony from the defense as well as the prosecution. And it's just really gruesome. It's really hard to listen to. Like, it's just grueling for everyone that's going through this. It's just horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. And one expert testifies that Dahmer was periodically removing body parts from the freezer and eating them. Mm -hmm. And then another one says that was a lie that Dahmer told to make himself seem insane. That seems to still be a little up in the air. Yeah, he, I mean, he does give testimony, uh, or you know, in his in his confession, he does talk about eating yeah. that the, the biceps. And he talks yes. about and the heart. The, yeah, about how tender. Yeah, the biceps were. Yeah. So yeah, so the prosecution yeah. says he never actually did that, but uh, the defense says yes, he did. So. He's sentenced to 15 consecutive life terms. So he does, he reads a prepared statement. He says, I knew I was sick or evil or both. Now I believe I was sick. The doctors have told me about my sickness and now I have some peace. I know how much harm I have caused. I tried to do the best I could after the arrest to make amends by telling the truth. I know I will be in prison for the rest of my life. I know I will have to turn to God to help me to get through each day. I should have stayed with God. I tried and failed and created a Holocaust. Thank God there will be no more harm I can do. I believe that only the Lord Jesus Christ can save me from my sins. And then later, he also pled guilty to aggravated murder in Ohio in the death of that very first kid that he killed right when he graduated from high school, Stephen Yeah. And he was also, in that case, sentenced to life in prison without parole. Right. And when he was found competent to stand trial, his dad was so upset because yeah. he knew he was being sent to prison with no treatment. And that's what he, the whole, that was his whole thing is why, you know, he's obviously sick. Mm-hmm. The thing you have to understand, though, about competency is all they're, all they're proving is, does he know what he did and does he know it's wrong? So it doesn't mean he's not insane because he is. Um, totally. It just means he's competent to stand trial. And there was there were some real dueling um, uh, psychological experts in that hearing. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, yeah, is Dahmer crazy? Yeah, he is. Of course he is, you know. That's, that's, anyone should be able to, you know. Right. Get that one now. I mean, yeah. he's a psychopath, but... Did he know what he was doing and did he know it was wrong? Yeah, 100% he did. So that's that's where competency really comes in. And so, you know, it, it talks about, you know, you hear like the insanity play and stuff like that. But really what they're looking at is competency. He was yeah. very much competent. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Ugh. So, obviously, he goes to prison. And he's in prison for a couple of years. And I think he was in custody total almost four or almost three years. But yeah, in on November 28th, he and two other inmates were assigned to clean a staff bathroom at the Columbia Correctional Institute Gymnasium in Portage, Wisconsin, where he was being housed. And guards left them to clean the bathrooms and without supervision for about 20 minutes. And when they discover, when they come back in, Dahmer has had the shit beat out of him. He Mm -hmm. is unconscious and his head and face are bloody and he dies on the way to the hospital from multiple skull fractures and brain trauma. And they find a bloody broom handle near him, but they don't feel like it, that was sturdy enough to do the damage to his body that was done. Mm -hmm. I, at any rate, they find out later that there was a steel bar stolen from the prison weight room that they think yeah. actually was the murder weapon. Mm-hmm. But uh, one of the other inmates with him was also attacked, Jesse Anderson, and he also died. He died in the hospital. He had been convicted of stabbing and beating his wife to death in 1992 and was serving a life term. So that leaves the third inmate. And his name was Christopher Scarver. Mm -hmm. He was only 25 years old. He was a convicted murderer. I reportedly had been taking antipsychotic medication. He murdered a coworker when he was angry at his boss, but the boss got away. Mm -hmm. And he claims that his boss was racist and that there had been some speculation here that perhaps he had killed Dahmer and Anderson because of their racism. Because mm-hmm. most of Dahmer's victims were black. Mm-hmm. And Anderson, when his wife was murdered, he tried to blame two fictitious black men for mm-hmm. murdering his wife. Sure. And had caused kind of a race incident with that. Mm-hmm. So we don't know that for sure. But that's what they decided that that's probably why he killed them both. Right. But Scarver also believed that he was Jesus Christ. Oh, boy. Yeah, another of these. Mm-hmm. So he had been in um, psychiatric hospitals over and over again. Uh, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Uh, he was found guilty of the murder that he did uh, and sent to prison, but uh, a jury did not think he was insane either. But uh, it sounds like maybe he was the one that probably shouldn't have been in prison. You know, maybe. Yeah, I know. It's the competency laws. It's hard. Because, you know, how do you prove insanity? What does that live? Yeah. That term doesn't really mean anything. Yeah. And so what it comes down to is, does this person understand what they did? Yeah. You know, really competency mostly protects people who are developmentally disabled. Yeah. If their intelligence level is too low to understand what they did and that it's wrong, they need to go into some kind of hospital situation. We don't really have anywhere in the U.S. really a good way to handle people like Jeffrey Dahmer and Scarver and, you know, many others who, yeah, they're definitely psychopaths. Yeah. But, you know, you put them in a hospital setting and then all they're going to do is just reoffend and harm hospital staff and other residents. Mm And I mean, there's just no, there's nowhere to put somebody like Jeffrey Dahmer. No, no. Well, except for six feet under apparently, because that's what happened. 
Yeah, which I think is not surprising at all, considering the things that he did. It doesn't surprise me at all that he was murdered in jail. No, not at all. So that is the life and times of Jeffrey Dahmer. Wow. So, I mean, obviously, yes, he had some instability. He was molested. Do do you think this is nature versus nurture? Do you think this is a cocktail of things? What do you think? I think he's a born psychopath. He went through some, you know, he went through some small traumatic events in his life. Generally, I would say that is not enough to create a psychopath. I mean, he was doing some of the the hot button things that you see for psychopaths, like killing small animals and, yeah. you know, um, you know, that all that kind of stuff. That's really creepy, scary yeah. stuff that when you see kids doing stuff like that, that is an indication of psychopathy. And I, I yeah. feel like, yeah, he had some instability in his life, but many people have that kind of instability in their lives. And do they right. become, you know, serial murderers? Yeah. No, they don't. No, they don't. Yeah. Yeah. Yucks. What yeah. a case. Yeah. Again, so frustrating and disappointing that he got as far as he did. You know, so there were so times. many red flags, so many opportunities to catch yeah. him that didn't well, work out. His victims were black men. Mm-hmm. And I got to say, Milwaukee police, and I know it's been a long time, but damn it, quit with that shit, you know? Yeah. People didn't take those things seriously when that one victim that got away reported him to the police. And he said, um, Jeffrey told this big story about how they were seeing each other and they just had an argument and, and all this stuff, you know, and they disbelieved him Yes, he was the white guy, you know, Mm -hmm. that was the only difference between Jeffrey and that victim is that he was white. Yep. And they did not believe this guy that he'd been drugged. And he told them he's very dangerous. He's going to do this stuff again. I'm afraid he's killing people. I think he was going to kill me. And they did not listen. No. And then with the 14 year old boy, what in the hell, you know, he again, just talked them into this is our situation. And they believed him because he was the white guy in the situation. You cannot change my mind that that is exactly why he was in the situation. Yeah. Gross. Really, really terrible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. But certainly this is an iconic case in uh you know true crime for true crime uh mm-hmm. followers. Uh this is a big one that uh you guys have asked many times. Yeah, and in criminology, yep, he will and because he did so many interviews, he was very willing to talk. Oh yeah, yeah. he was. Once he started talking, he did not shut up until no. yeah. And so if you're interested in this case further, definitely go and look for some of the interviews that he did watch for. There's a fairly new documentary that's called uh, My Friend Jeffrey Dahmer. That's right. My friend and it's it's, uh, it's filmed using the testimony of his friends growing up mm-hmm. and the history that we know about his childhood. And it's the story of who he was before he committed his first murder. Very interesting, very telling mm-hmm. about who he was and how somebody could have noticed, you know, professionals were around him at school, but mm-hmm. he was the kind of kid that nobody paid any attention to because he knew how to just be the quiet kid. And then he got ignored. Even though he was a poor little first grade teacher, you know, 
mm-hmm. that was worried and did, you know, talk to his parents and did feel like there was, he wasn't being taken care of. Uh-huh. Can you imagine, you know, 20 years down the road, her, you know, with all of this coming out going, right. like, yeah. Yeah. But, but understanding Jeffrey Dahmer is so important because it helps us to catch psychopaths sooner. Right. Yeah. To understand, you know, the behaviors that lead up to something like what he's done. It, yeah. it is helpful. It is. Um, Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yep. Well, that's it. That is Jeffrey Dahmer. So we will be back tomorrow with our missing or murdered Indigenous woman case for the week. We'll be back Wednesday night at 7 p.m. for case updates. And we do have some. And we'll be back 7 p.m. on Thursday night for the Psychic Hour. And it is the first show of March. So it will be our marching order show. So lots more great content for us to come this week. As always, like, subscribe, comment, follow, share. You know, blimp in the sky, whatever you want. <laughs> blimp in the <laughs> sky. That's a new one. That's a new one. We appreciate you guys and um, all of your support very much to help us to continue this work. And we'll be back. So you have been listening to another production of True Crime Paranormal with the Psychic Sisters. Take care. Bye, guys. Life is complicated. The last year has been so hard on sensitive people. So many uncertainties and so much heavy energy to wade through. People are working on jobs and relationships, energy work, self-development, and health. So why call me? Because my clients are my family. When you invite me onto your team, I will do all that I can to help you shift from a place of surviving to a place of thriving. I can help you shift from uncertainty, stress, fear, lack into a place of joy, peace, clarity, and abundance. Give me a call. Katie Weaver, Professional Psychic Advisor, over at 12listen.com. Hi, I'm Christy Brower, podcaster and professional psychic. I have spent the last 14 years honing my skills as a psychic and a healer. I work on the Purple Ocean app. You can find it in any of the app stores. And I am available every day for video and chat readings. I specialize in pattern breaking, uh, particularly in relationships, but really in any area of your life. If you're feeling stuck and like you can't move on or you can't let something go, I am the reader for you. That is exactly what I focus on. It's what I love to do. I love to help stuck people get moving and I've been doing it for many years and have been very successful at it and can do that for you as well. So if you are having trouble letting go of a relationship or a fear or a challenge of any kind in your life, come see me at Purple Ocean and we will do everything we can, me and my guidance system and my intuition and you, because it's always a package deal that we work together, but we will find a way to break that pattern for you. So come see me over at Purple Ocean and let's break your patterns. If you're enjoying this podcast, don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. If you're watching us on YouTube, you can always like and subscribe there as well. We also love comments and reviews. True Crime Paranormal is hosted by Katie Weaver and Christy Brower and produced by Christy Brower.
True Crime Paranormal is a short girl productions podcast.